James 1. James chapter 1. We've been working our way through this book. I've been enjoying the study myself. I believe this is such a practical study for us. God has given us a great book here to look at. We ended last time in the book of James, uh, with James making it clear to us, the only way truly for us to exhibit the glory of our salvation to those around us is if we live a separated life before those people uh, that, that we are coming in contact with, separated from the flesh, separated from the world. Uh, there are some things, folks, that simply cannot exist in our lives if we're going to live, be to our world what Jesus Christ wants us to be. And the Word of God shows us clearly what those things are. Very rarely do we have any question about that. God lets us know specifically things that must be separated out of our lives if we want to show Jesus Christ uh, to the world around us. So that book before you will take care of that. It'll let you know exactly how to live if you're willing to look at it and see what it has to say. Now, we passed over something last time that I want to focus in on just for a minute tonight in verse 21. And so look at that verse if you would. Uh, James 1.21, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. I want you to look at that phrase again, the engrafted word. Uh, you remember the parable of the sower back when Jesus spoke it in the Gospels. All uh, three of the four Gospels had that uh, parable in it. And what he told us was the word of God was a seed that was planted into the hearts of people. And as that seed is, as seed is planted into the ground, the word of God is planted into those hearts. And then a person, can, if they respond to that seed, that seed grows and the word of God grows inside them. Uh, when you got saved, as amazing as this is, God's word was planted inside you. It was engrafted into you. Uh, the word engrafted there is a word that refers to taking something that is living and attaching it to something else that is living. And the engrafted piece grows as though it's part of the original. So, when, for example, when somebody's badly burned, uh, they get a skin graft, which simply means they take skin off of one part of the body and place it where the burn is. And that skin is attached there and begins to grow as though the skin was always always there. That's what he's talking about here with this engrafted word. The marvelous truth is when you got saved, God engrafted his word. God planted his word inside you. The word of God was the agent that uh, brought about your salvation. And his word is engrafted into us to help us grow as believers after salvation. So when we, when we read physically, when we physically read this book, the Holy Spirit takes what our eyes see, connects it with, to what God has placed inside us and spiritual growth occurs as a result. That's an amazing thing, folks. I hope you're getting the, the wonder of that. Uh, the little saying says, you know, this book will keep you from sin and this sin will keep you from this book. Uh, that is exactly true, both externally and internally. As you take the word of God and place it inside you, God then uses that to help you grow and help you understand exactly how he wants you to live as a believer. And that is why Paul calls this so great salvation in the book of Hebrews. <laughs> There is no religion, no system of thought that exists out there anywhere that can do for us what God's salvation can do for us. God has thought of everything. That shouldn't surprise us, but that's true. Every part of our salvation is one more quality that accomplishes the purpose for which he devised it when he made the plan up in the first place. And this plan of salvation works completely as it is supposed to because God is the author of this plan of salvation. Now, there's an aspect of God's word that uh, James has referred to briefly, but now he zeroes in on it. He talked about it back in verse 20. Look at that uh, verse, if you would. It says, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. He talks there about the fact that uh, the wrath uh, comes from the fact that we are not uh, connected to God as we should be. Now look at verse 22. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. What he says is, when you get the word of God inside you, it affects your behavior, it affects how you live, it affects what you do. So we listen to the word of God, 
uh, we take in what the Word of God says, we allow the meaning of the Word of God to impact how we think about things and what our opinions are about things, but that's not enough. That's all the internal work that the Word of God does, and that is very, very, very important. But again, the book is called, we've had titled this book, The Gospel in Action. Uh, there is minimal action required to reading the Word of God. Now, certainly there's some action there, but minimally, is there any action? You can read God's Word in bed just laying there. You don't have to be active as you read it. You can read it just sitting uh, wherever you might sit. So there's no act, specific activity that goes on in reading the Word of God. What he says is, don't just read it, don't just hear it, but do it. So the hearing is important, but it's not enough. Not enough to read God's word and then do nothing with it for the next week uh, or two or whatever uh, to put it away and do, allow nothing to happen from that. It's not enough to come to church and hear the message and then go home and do nothing with what you've heard until whenever or maybe never. Every time we read the word of God, and I'm sure you Bible students are aware of this. If you've been saved any time at all, you know this. Every time you read the word of God, if you're paying attention to that book, it's going to call you to do something. <laughs> Not just read it, but do something with it. Every time we sit under the preaching of the word of God, if it's biblical preaching, uh, that preaching will call us to do something with what we heard. Uh, it's, I've always strived in these messages I put together to make it practical and not just doctrinal, not just theological. Uh, doctrine and theolo theology are important as a foundation of what we believe. But I feel like we ought to leave church with some action plan involved, something that we can do with what we've heard or from the message that's been presented. I have heard many, many messages where the preacher was so intent on impressing the hearers with what he knew that there was no practical application. It was just a long theological study. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but there needs to be some sort of practical action to it as well. I've heard many preachers who do that very thing. What did Paul say? Paul said, knowledge puffeth up. If you learn too much, it's going to make you prideful. The only thing that knowledge without application does is make me think that I'm smarter than I really am. And there are many people who, who are, are stuck there. So there is the hearing and there's the application of the hearing. And James calls that the doing. Put feet to what you hear. Put action to your knowledge. Uh, show something from what you've taken in from the word of God. Be Jesus Christ to your world in an even greater way because of what you've seen in the word of God. And if we choose not to do that, if we choose simply to hear and stop there, James lets us know the results of that. What is your life going to look like if you simply choose to hear the word of God and do nothing more with it? Uh, look at the verses again. He said, be ye doers of verse 22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Look at it. Deceiving your own selves. If I choose to hear the word of God and not do the word of God, I end up deceiving myself. It is self-deception when I hear God's word and do nothing with it. Now, here's the picture to get to fully understand this. You've got a group of theologians sitting around a table and they're reading the word of God and they're discussing it in great detail what every word means. It's them using all their study helps, all the extra biblical historical records, uh, going back to the original languages, taking apart each syllable. And each person there at that table is working to display the deep knowledge that they have of the word of God. And they leave the group that day and feel like they really accomplished something through that deep discussion they had. But they do nothing at all with anything that they've talked about, anything they read, anything they studied. No action on their part. Just study and walk away and come back the next week and do it all over again. James says they're deceiving themselves if they think that's all there is to it. 
We've got a Bible study we do every other Tuesday, John leads. Uh, that Bible study, some part of that Bible study should let us know, what do we do with all this? How do we present it to the world? How do we live this out? What's the action that goes along with whatever we, it is that we studied? Uh, there is a deceit going on if people think that a deep discussion of God's word with no action is enough. God couldn't care less about how much we know of the word of God if we never do anything with it. <laughs> he couldn't care less. I had an uncle who was a Bible student. He knew more about God's word than I think most pastors did that I knew over the years. But he refused to even teach a junior Sunday school class. <laughs> he wouldn't do it. He could have deep Bible discussions and hold his own with whoever he was talking to. But there was never any action to go along with it. He deceived himself. He thought that was enough. He thought having all this knowledge was all there was to it. But if there's no action to what we know, what God says through, the, through James is that it's a waste. And I am very serious about this when I say this. I'd rather have 50 people in a church with a basic knowledge of the word of God who are willing to put feet to what they know than a 100 Bible scholars in a church who had all the scholarly knowledge and never did anything with it. I'd much rather have the first than the second. God is never impressed with our knowledge. He is certainly not impressed with it if we never do anything with it after we learn it. So what James is telling us here is there needs to be a balance. He doesn't say don't hear the word of God. Certainly hear the word of God. Study it. I'll figure it out. But at the same time, uh, not only to be a student of the word of God, but put action to it to complete the whole picture. So that's one result of a person who is a hearer and not a doer. The other one's found in, in verse beginning in verse 23. I'll look at that those verses if you would. He says, for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So the other consequence that comes if we choose to hear and not do, is that we make no effort whatsoever to address what God's word reveals to us personally. James compares the word of God to a mirror. When we open the word of God, as you have it before you tonight, uh, what you see reflected back to you is what you are when it's filtered through the principles of that book. <laughs> when you open that thing up, God's going to reveal to you what you look like as you apply those principles to what's going on in your life. Uh, that's one of the main reasons why uh, the world hates the word of God. Also, why many Christians refuse to make it a regular part of their lives. They don't like what's reflected back to them. <laughs> they don't like that picture that comes back. They don't want to see that. I feel the need to, to comment on something that's been going on this month. We have this gay pride emphasis going on right now. Any believer who attempts to show, what, to show these people what God's word says about that behavior, they are immediately ridiculed and marginalized, like you have no idea what you're talking about. And those in the world do that uh, without them even hearing what God's word has to say. The minute you open the word of God to show them what the word of God says, they stop you there. And the reason they do that is because they want to do what they want to do and they want to revel in their sin and they, the, the reflection of God's word back to them would stop them from doing that. And so they just don't want to do it. They just set it aside. Amen. Now, since we're on this topic, I want to put something on record uh, before this month ends. And in this day, what I'm about to say will be sound bold and controversial, but it's not. It's just it's neither bold or controversial. It is simply a statement that is found in biblical truth. No Christian who is grounded in what God's word says could in good conscience take part in any aspect of the gay pride movement. No biblically grounded believer 
can celebrate that lifestyle or give approval to it or cast even a side glance toward it. Any believer who has taken part in anything connected to that movement is a believer who either has no knowledge of God's word or who has been deceived. One of the two. And I'm not backing down a bit on that statement, folks. I'm assuming no one in this room is offended by that. But if you are, or if you're watching tonight and you're offended by that, here's the only advice I can give you. Get into the Word of God. Allow God's Spirit to illuminate you about the glorification of sin and the completely sinful lifestyle that is the foundation of that movement. And that's it, folks. It's sin from start to finish. I'm going to quote you what our president said on the White House lawn as he was uh, had the, uh, that gay pride event on that Saturday. Here's what he said. He said, we're gathered here today to honor the extraordinary, and I'm not being solicitous, the extraordinary courage and contributions of the LGBTQ community to celebrate their legacy and their progress. Folks, it takes no courage to sin, and to promote a sinful lifestyle is not progress. That's not progress. (laughs) And again, believers who buy into that, and I'm not surprised the world buys into it. That's what the world does. So I'm not talking to the world here. I'm talking to believers. (laughs) Any believer who buys into that is either a believer who is ignorant or a believer who is deceived. And my guess is if things continue politically as they are right now, we'll soon no longer be able to make statements like that without any consequence, at least. So I thought I'd better say it and put it on the record while we still are able to do that before we lose our free speech. Now, I want to say one more thing about it since we're rolling here. Let's just say one more thing. Those people who are caught up in the homosexual lifestyle are people who are lost and need Jesus Christ. Or they're saved and they're deceived, one of the two. But those are people Jesus Christ died for. They are sinners just like every other person born onto this earth, and their sin is no different than any other sin. Because God doesn't see levels of sin. They're all sins. And the wages of all sin is death. No matter what the sin is. And the problem with believers who are supporting this movement is that instead of confronting the sin and getting those people to Jesus Christ, they're reinforcing that sin and approving that sin as though it's not going to end in death. They're deceiving those folks. No sin and no sinful lifestyle, no matter what it is, should be overlooked or supported by those who know the Lord. And a believer who does that or who will say that they're loving sinners by supporting that movement. But if they're implying that the sinner is okay the way they are, that's not love, folks. That's not love. Loving the sinner means tell them about their sin. The preacher that confronted me with my sin that day loved me and told me about my sin. And I trusted Jesus Christ. That was love. That was love. It's the most unloving thing a person can do to approve or support their sin and not identify and condemn it. That's not love. I don't care what sin a person is involved in, folks. We only show love to that person when we confront them about that sin biblically and help them see that the way out of that sin is Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus Christ is the only answer to whatever sin people are involved in. And those folks who are doing these parades and so forth, what they need is Jesus Christ. That's what they need. And we need to love them. We need to love them to Jesus Christ by confronting them about their sin. And if they choose not to hear the confrontation, we move on to somebody who will. But we need to do the work. We must never support any sin in the name of supporting those who are involved in it. That is not true biblical love. So, that's my little commentary, and I put it on the record now so we can move on from that. (laughs) Lost people avoid God's word and they hate God's word because they don't like what's reflected back to them. And when you meet a sinner who's involved in any kind of sin and you try to tell them what the word of God says, they fight you on it because they don't want to hear it. They want to stay in their sin. And saved people avoid God's word uh, for the exact same reason. 
They read God's word. It identifies some sin in their life or some behavior or some activity they're involved in. And they really enjoy that activity. But God's word says it is sin or it identifies some character trait in their in, in their life or some habit or some attitude, or some way they respond to things that are opposed to God's standards, and they don't want to change those things. They don't want to give those things up. They don't. So what they simply do is stop reading the Word of God. And it happens all the time. Don't think it doesn't, because it does. There are people uh, out there, maybe in this place too, but out there for sure, who stop reading the Word of God because they didn't like what it was saying to them. They just stopped reading it instead. Now, I want to give you a very unfortunate truth. When you get up in the morning and you refuse to look in the mirror and you refuse to do that because the last time you did it, you didn't like what you see. The truth is you look the same whether you look in the mirror or not. (laughs) Nothing changes. Not looking into the mirror doesn't change your looks in the least. Now, if you look into the mirror, at least you've got a fighting chance. I mean, at least you can comb your hair or wipe off the dry spaghetti from last night's supper. At least you can take care of whatever's there if you look in the mirror. But if you never look in the mirror, you're giving yourself no chance at all to make any improvement. That book is the exact same way. (laughs) We may not like what the Word of God says to us. We may not like the way the Word of God portrays us. But if it identifies things for us in our lives that are outside God's standard, at least now we can make the changes that we need to make because God has revealed them to us and we can line ourselves back up with Him again because we looked into the mirror. And so a person who hears and does not do is taking a great chance of living a life outside of God's standard because they're not giving God a chance to show them what they need to see. They simply refuse to see what the standard is because uh, they don't want to deal with that or give up what they're doing. Now, I want to talk to you about this whole thing about the word of God being like a mirror. And what I want to I think I put these on your outline. Uh, I want to tell you 10 things about a mirror. And these are fully applicable to what the word of God is. So, first of all, a mirror will not lie. A mirror will not lie. A mirror only reflects back what's already there. We may not like what the Word of God shows us, but at least we have the confidence in knowing that what we see in that Word is truth. So, if you want truth, the book will show you truth about yourself. Number two, we can't blame the mirror for what it shows us. (laughs) It's simply reflecting back what's there. Again, so many people avoid the word of God because they don't like what it shows them. Folks, that's not the book's problem. It's not the problem with the book. If we don't like what we see as you read the word of God, that's our problem. Not a problem with the word of God. Number three, when I look into a mirror, I see myself. I don't see anybody else. When I look into the Word of God, what I see is me. And I can't blame anybody else for what's there. I can't make excuses for it by blaming somebody else. What I see is all me. (laughs) It's all me. And that's good. I need to see that. Number four, a broken mirror gives a distorted image. Make sure the book that you're using is the right book. Otherwise, you're going to get a distorted image of yourself, and it's going to do you no good whatsoever. Number five, I can't get a good look at myself in a mirror if I stand 50 feet away from it. (laughs) In order to get the right image in a mirror, I've got to get close to that mirror, as close as necessary, as close as possible. The same is true with the Word of God. To allow God's Word to reflect back to me in a way that is beneficial, I must develop a relationship with the Word of God. And folks, I mean that, and you need to hear that. I need to hear that. Uh, You don't just read this book. This is not a textbook that you read to learn facts. You develop a relationship with that book because in that book is the breath of God. (laughs) So when I get into the word of God, I don't 
read it, I'm developing a, a relationship with that book. And by doing that, I get close enough to it where it can show me exactly what I need to see. Number six, if I want to make myself look, keep myself looking presentable throughout the day, I must check that mirror more than once a day. And again, if I want God's word to do the work, it's something I must have on my mind throughout the day. That's why scripture memorization, that's why meditating on the word of God is so important. It gives us that opportunity to have the word of God confront us throughout the day. Number seven, a mirror does us no good in the darkness. Uh, There must be light for a mirror to do its job. God's word will do us no good whatsoever without the illumination of the spirit of God. I can't understand the word of God without God's spirit guiding me through it. Otherwise, I'm going to see no reflection whatsoever because of the darkness of my flesh is going to hide that reflection. And so when I get into this book, the first thing I need to do is ask God through his spirit to reveal to me exactly what I need to see. And the spirit will do that if we ask him to. Number eight, every mirror shows a current image. Uh, This book is a living book. What you see in there is exactly what you need to see for that day. That book is amazing how it does that. (laughs) I'll read a a verse or a passage over and over and over and has no connection to me uh, in that sense at all. And then one day I'll read it and it nails me. That day, that's what I needed to hear. And that book is so alive that on that particular day, God took those words and through his spirit stuck me with them because it's a living book. No book is like that. Tomorrow, the image is going to be what you need tomorrow. Today, the image is going to be what you need today. It'll report the image that you need to see every second that you open that book up. If you ask God's spirit to illuminate it to you. Number nine, you can have the most ornate, the most expensive mirror money can buy. But if you never look into it, it'll do you no good. I know of folks who who keep take very good care of their Bibles. I mean, like they protect them and so forth. And nothing wrong with that. But they never look into them. <laughs> it's this beautiful Bible that sits on a shelf all week long, drag it to church on Sunday, and then set it back up there. It's a gorgeous looking Bible. Uh, the, the, the gold on the, on the pages is perfect. But they're not looking into it. That book does them no good whatsoever. <laughs> A beautiful Bible sitting on a shelf provides no reflection at all. The only way for God's word to be useful is to open it up and allow it to do its work. Finally, running away from the mirror does not change the image that it reflects. Now, I'm going to tell you, when I get up in the morning, I look in that mirror, I feel like running. (laughs) Scares me to death some days. (laughs) That can't be me. That must be something else in this room. But it's me. It's me. (laughs) In the same way with the word of God. If I want to grow as a believer, I've got to be willing to take the risk of looking into that book and see exactly what it reveals to me and take my lumps and change what needs to be changed. Just risk it and get into the word of God and let it show you exactly what you need to see. Now, look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. You see, that What that verse tells me is if I look into the word of God, but I don't do what it says, sooner or later, I'm going to forget what was revealed to me. It'll just be facts that I'll forget eventually. The familiar words of Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Every time you get into that book, that flesh is out to fool you. Whenever you get into that book, that flesh is going to try and show you something different than what the book says. Every time that book, that flesh is going to try and deceive you into seeing something other than what God's trying to reveal. 
So the only way that I can really know the word of God and have it do its work is if I act on it, if I reinforce it by doing what it tells me to do. If I don't practice what the word of God says, eventually what that flesh is going to do is convince me that I'm really not all that bad. And I've heard believers say that. I'm a pretty good guy overall. I've heard sinners say that. Lost people say, I'm not going to get saved because I'm really a pretty good person. (laughs) That's the heart deceiving them. The flesh has deceived them into believing something that is simply not true and not, not into the, the mirror of the word of God to see that it's not true. That, ver- that flesh, if you're not careful, is going to convince you that all you have is a few flaws here and there. Not a big deal. Uh, overall, you're just fine. And a believer who is convinced that they are all right as they are, they have no need for growth whatsoever. And they're not going to grow. Why would they? They're fine the way they are. So you see, practicing the word of God is the only possible way we have to keep this flesh at bay and maintain a realistic view of ourselves. Now look at verse 25. Notice how James identifies the word of God. He said, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Now look at that phrase, the perfect law of liberty. I want to take that phrase apart with you if we could and understand what James is telling us here. First of all, notice that word perfect. And I'm going to jump on my hobby horse just for a second and say that it does not say perfect in the originals. It does not say perfect in the original language. It is a blanket statement that says the book that God has given to us is a perfect book. Now, some may disagree, but I read that to mean that God has promised me a perfect version of his law. And the book that I have before me tonight, I am 1000 percent convinced is the perfect book that God has given me. This book has gone through the refining process of Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7, and God has produced a perfect book for us, and God has preserved a perfect book for us. And only a perfect God can produce a perfect book. And a perfect God will make sure that human hands stay off the book and will keep human air out of that book, so that book remains perfect. And those who tell you there are mistakes in the Word of God are really discounting the power God has. (laughs) They've they've got a, a small God, that's all I can say. So how do I know that this book is exactly the book that I need to be looking into? I know because it is the only perfect book on earth that is produced by a perfect God. (laughs) So that's the mirror God wants me to see my reflection in. This book right here. Now, notice also it is the perfect law. Now, a law is meant to be followed. And there are consequences when we break the law. So here we are in a New Testament book, not an Old Testament book. And we're being told as New Testament believers that there is a law that we must keep. Now, here's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament as far as that law. Uh, In the Old Testament, they kept that law because the law was the means of their salvation. The soul that sinneth or the soul that breaks the law, that soul shall die. So for the Old Testament saint, that law, it was life or death uh, to follow that law. Now, that is not the case with you and I tonight. If I choose not to follow God's law, my salvation remains intact. However, it is still a law to be followed, and there are consequences to it if I don't follow it. And I believe this. I believe with all the changes that have been made to the word of God over the years, some believers have begun to see this book as a take or leave a proposition. Uh, It's not a perfect book, so if I don't do all of it, I really can't be blamed for that. It's good if I follow God's law, they'll say, but it's no big deal if I don't follow God's law. That doesn't make any sense, folks. It's a law. It's a law. You can take it or leave it if you want to, but just as breaking a human law has consequences, so also there are consequences to breaking God's law. And New Testament believer, you had better spend significant time finding out what this law says to you and then uh, follow what it says. 
uh, and once, so what James says is, once you figure out what the law says, then be a doer of that law, because that is the only way for a New Testament believer to remain in the will of God, is by following the law that God has given to us. If God says it, it's a law. You better do it. Uh, no question about it. Just do it. So it is a perfect law. And then look at the next phrase. It is a perfect law of liberty. Now, think about that for a second. That is so, so contrary to how human thinking goes, because what you and I see, we see laws as restrictive. We see laws as stopping us from doing something that we want to do. Uh, the whole idea of laws is to rein in mankind's tendency to do harmful and hurtful things to themselves or to somebody else. When you watch the peaceful protests, I put that in quotes, the peaceful protests uh, over the years, and you see what happens as a result, you see what happens when people decide that laws no longer apply to them and they exercise their liberty. <laughs> Mankind without law is an animal and does whatever he wants to do, wherever he wants to do it, and nobody can stop them because they're off the charts. You have riots and looting and death when the laws are removed. So having a law of liberty sounds like a complete contradiction. And, of course, God's really into contradictions. You might know that. <laughs> but you've got to think about who, what the context of this. Uh, James doctrinally is writing to Jews. They've labored under the Old Testament law. That law was not liberating. That law was restrictive. The do's and don'ts of that law covered every part of a person's life. Read through that. If you haven't already, I'm sure you have. But you read through the book of Leviticus sometime and the book of Deuteronomy, and God covered everything. I mean, there's nothing about their lives that wasn't covered somewhere in that law he gave them. It's remarkable to me. He thought of everything. Of course, that's because he's God. So there were strict guidelines on every part of their behavior, and those things had to be followed. Now, here we are in the, in the time of where God's grace is fully manifest. And there's a new law in place now. I want you to hold your hand there in James, if you would, and go back to the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 8. And these are probably verses for many of you that are very familiar. I'd like to have you look at them this evening. Uh, Romans chapter 8, when you get there, look at verse 1. Romans 8, 1. A fantastic verse, by the way. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, look at verse two there, because you have both laws mentioned. You have the law of sin and death and you have the law of the spirit of life. There's the two laws. That's the laws that James is talking about. James is talking about that second law. He's talking about the law of the spirit of life. Now, we know what the Old Testament law was all about. What is this law of the spirit of life? Well, it is through the law of the spirit of life that the Holy Spirit of God brings life to those who are spiritually dead. Before you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, you had a dead spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit of God brought life to that spirit. And there's three parts to this law. First of all, as I say, when I asked God to save me through Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God came inside me and revived my dead spirit. Your spirit was dead until the Holy Spirit came. If you're saved tonight, you have a live spirit because the Holy Spirit came inside and brought life to that dead spirit. That's number one. Number two, the second he does that, I am baptized by the Spirit of God, and that places me into the body of Christ. So that's the, the second part of this law. Number three, at the same time as he does that, the Spirit also cuts my soul away from my body, and my soul is now free from my flesh. And as a result, my salvation is secured forever, regardless of what this flesh does, because a soul doesn't sin anymore. It's cut away from the body. So when the law of the Spirit of life takes over, look at the last part of verse two again, if you would. It says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. There's the word 
free, liberated from the law of sin and death. When I trusted Jesus Christ to be my Savior, and when the law of the Spirit of life was applied to my life, I was freed from the law of sin and death. And therefore, the spirit of life is a law of liberty. It frees me from the sin that controlled me up to that point uh, before I trusted Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I'll flip over a few pages to Romans chapter 6. Go to Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 6. Paul says there, knowing this, that our, our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. There it is again, folks. Because the law of the spirit of life has been applied, I no longer serve sin positionally. Now, my flesh may still do it. My soul no longer serves sin. It's been cut away. With that spirit applied, uh, the relationship that, that I had with that sinful nature of mine has been destroyed, and I'm freed from it. And I will never be brought under the power of that sinful life again, as far as positionally. That's exactly what James is saying. James says it is a perfect law of liberty. That law of the spirit of life frees you from the bondage of sin and death. Amen, amen, and amen. Praise God for it, folks. That's your salvation right there. Because you're free from the law of sin and death, you're saved. If you weren't free from that thing, you'd be headed to hell. But you're freed from it. Now, with that in mind, go back to James chapter 1. So, we as believers look into this perfect law of liberty. We continue in the perfect law of liberty. We remember what we've heard and we are not forgetful hearers. We are doers of the work as a result of what we see. And look at the last part. This man, the one who does that, shall be blessed in his deed. He shall be blessed in his deed. Here's what religion says. Religion says, do good works and you'll be free from sin. Jesus Christ says, be freed from sin and then do good works. <laughs> and it's the complete, complete opposite. Religion says, do these works, do enough of them, balance out the scale in your favor, and you'll be free from sin when you meet God. Jesus Christ says, I've taken care of that for you. Trust me as your Savior, be free from that sin, and then you can do all the good works you want because you'll be free to do them. <laughs> Anything this flesh says is always the exact opposite of what God says. God says here, the good deeds we do after we look into this perfect law of liberty, after we're liberated from the law of sin and death, those good deeds are blessed by God. A person has God's blessing upon them as they do those things that originate from the law of the spirit of life. And here's what it also means, and this does not go well with the, with the uh, good works crowd. What it also means is no person is blessed in doing good works outside of the law of the spirit of life. No matter what they do, no matter how good it might be, God has no recognition of it whatsoever outside of salvation through Jesus Christ. God doesn't even notice those deeds. I don't know if Mother Teresa was saved or not. I don't want to even judge it. But I don't, what I will say to you is this. If she was not saved, all that good stuff she did was not recognized by God in the least. Not a bit. Nothing. Nothing. She might have helped a lot of people in the, over the world. She might have given people relief in all kinds of ways. God saw none of it without the law of the spirit of life being applied. And that's true of every person you know who's trying to work their way to heaven. God doesn't even see those works. It makes no difference to him whatsoever. God is not keeping a, a ledger up there and watching all those good works and balancing those things out. He's not doing that. He doesn't even see those works. 
First of all, we have to trust Jesus Christ and have that spirit of life applied. God is not impressed with good deeds that occur outside the law that he has established. And the perfect law of liberty for the believer, that's the law that makes a difference. The only way to find God's blessing in doing good is we do it under the blood of Jesus Christ. So, as we close, I want to give you four words to walk away with tonight. Four words that will help you uh, keep track of what James has told to us. The words are hear, do, remember, and receive. Hear what the Word of God is saying to you by getting into it. Do what the Word of God says by acting on what you hear. Remember what God's Word has said to you in every situation that you find yourself. And then receive God's blessing by living life according to the law that he has established for you. Hear, do, remember, receive. That is the Christian life in four words. God makes it simple for us, and I'm thankful for that. All right, stand if you